Now, before we get started with today's episode, let me crack open this delicious, thirst-quenching, ice-cold Pepsi-Cola. Welcome to Post Credits with Gil Garcia, where we go beyond the final scene of the worst Sony Marvel movies. And today, do we have one of the films of all time? On this week's edition of the show, we are doing a full deep dive into the clusterfuck that is Madame Web. Fair warning if you're trying to avoid spoilers for this movie, I'm not going to pull any punches. Every aspect of this movie needs to be discussed. So if you want to know my thoughts on the film, but you don't want to get spoiled, Head on over to my YouTube channel where I have officially posted my first film review there. On that channel, I have a spoiler-free review. It's quick and to the point. Then, when you have seen the film or you're willing to watch spoilers or listen to spoilers, come on back to the podcast. To find the video, just search for Post Credits with Gil Garcia over on YouTube. For the new subscribers and listeners, I want to thank you guys for all your support this week on the video. It was an exciting project, and it has me excited for what's coming next. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, we have three segments. I like to call them acts. The first act is all about my expectations and connections to the filmmaker and to the film itself. The second act is the spoiler review. Then, the third act is going beyond the final scene with our filmmaking factoids, critical, and audience reception. I have a lot to say about this movie and not a whole lot of time to say it. So let's get into this thing. This is Act 1, Expectations. In Madame Webb, Cassandra Webb is a New York metropolis paramedic who begins to demonstrate signs of clairvoyance. Forced to challenge revelations about her past, she needs to safeguard three young women from a deadly adversary who wants them destroyed. Madame Webb is directed by S.J. Clarkson, who is known for Jessica Jones, The Defenders, and she's even directed a few episodes of Succession. The movie is written by Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless. Oh boy, these guys are known for writing Morbius, Gods of Egypt, and Dracula Untold. That's any indication of what we're in for. <laughs> the film stars Coda Johnson as Cassie Webb, Sidney Sweeney as Julia Cornwall, not Carpenter, Isabella Merced as Anya Corazon, Celeste O'Connor as Maddie Franklin, Tahar Rahim as Ezekiel Sims, and Adam Scott as Ben Parker. Let's not beat around the bush. The writing was on the wall for this film. This movie was going to be a disaster right from its inception. Sony, in its desperation to keep the Marvel licensed, is following the same trap that 20th Century Fox was in during the mid to late 2000s, forced to churn out the quickest, trashiest, cheapest comic book movies they can, Sony has now produced four films in this Spider-Man parallel universe to prevent the rights from going back to Kevin Feige and Disney. These four films include Venom, Morbius, Venom Let There Be Carnage, and now Madam Web, and soon to be Craven the Hunter. Now regardless of how you feel about Venom, each of these movies have no right to exist being completely disconnected from Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and the MCU. These are four characters 
that hinge on Spider-Man within their identity. And the fact that they're making movies without Spider-Man about these people is insane to me. And with Morbius, Sony hit a new low bar for mid-budget superhero films. From being memed on to releasing the film twice theatrically, then bombing twice theatrically because the internet gaslighted the studio executives. It feels like the entire creative force behind these movies are so out of touch with modern trends and social discourse. This reeks of a studio that is so desperate to string together whatever they can to avoid losing the rights to Spider-Man back to Disney. It's insane. These movies all harken back to a time period of comic book filmmaking from the 2000s when these kind of movies were greenlit all over the place. However, instead of producing the next X-Men from 2000 or Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, we're getting the kinds of movies like Ben Affleck's Daredevil, Halle Berry's Catwoman, and the Fantastic Four movies. It's really bizarre to think how superhero films started off with garbage like this, ascended to the incredible heights of Avengers Endgame, then came crashing back down to the likes of Morbius and Madame Web. Now, (laughs) this may be an indicator of a bigger issue going on with the genre. Studios like Disney, Sony, and even Warner Brothers are having to reach deep within their catalog of comic book properties in hopes of finding the next big hit, the next big IP, Iron Man, if you will. But the issue is characters like Madame Webb, Michael Morbius, Craven the Hunter, Moon Knight, and Echo, they don't fit the bill of the kinds of characters to launch a big tentpole franchise. And then you compound that with the diversification of filmmakers that are now being hired to helm these pictures. Now, in full disclosure, I'm all for the diversification of Hollywood filmmakers. I worked in television before, and I found out firsthand how out of control nepotism is with the industry. Now, to see fresh new writers, directors, actors, and special effects teams get an opportunity to create these big projects, it's actually really encouraging to me. But, and this is a big but, the talent has to be there. I look at a film like The Marvels, which was directed by Nia DaCosta, whose only directorial film credit was Candyman, and then I think to myself, well, couldn't they find a person who has actually directed an action film? How does a horror movie kind of relate into launching a superhero movie of this caliber? And no offense to Nia, but The Marvels was an important film for Marvel. It wasn't just a Disney Plus series. This movie had the unfortunate job of reclaiming audience interest in the MCU following Ant-Man and the Wasp's Quantumania's bomb. And it failed spectacularly on a financial and creative level. It even won my Gilly Award for the floppy, which means it lost the most money at the box office in 2023. With interest in movie theaters dwindling, folks will now only see movies in theaters if they know it will be good. They won't be spending 50 bucks or more on a night out watching a mid-tier superhero movie that feels like it's written and created by disgruntled college graduates. People are much more selective about what they're going to watch in the theaters. So when the first trailers and images for Madame Web released, the internet got a whiff of the shitstorm that was coming to them. And I think the critical moment in this film's marketing came from the moment where Dakota Johnson says in the trailer, he was in the Amazon with my mom when she was researching spiders just before she died. Not only is this amazing piece of writing a glimpse at the horrendous exposition dumps that plagued this script, but it also showcased the lifeless, soulless performance of Dakota Johnson in this movie. 
the trailer did more damage to this movie than Sony could have imagined. And the worst part of it all, it was hardly meme-worthy. At least with Morbius, there was that moment where he embarrassingly says, Oh, Dr. Mark Morbius, at your service. But you watch the trailer from Madame Web, and there is nothing funny about it. It just looks awful. I watched that trailer a lot, and I mean a lot. It came on before nearly every movie I went to the theater for. Each and every time it became more and more painful to sit through. But if there is one thing that I'm really grateful for after all this time, it's that I never have to watch the trailer ever again. (laughs) So, speaking of never watching again, I think it's time that we get into the review of this abomination of cinema so that I never have to talk or think about this movie ever again. This is Act 2, the spoiler review of Madame Web. This is your final warning. From this point on, we are discussing every spoiler with Madame Web until the end of the episode. If you're looking to spend two hours... On a mindless, bore-fest, dumb fuck of a movie, boys Madame Web the film for you. This movie fails in nearly every facet of creative filmmaking. It's an uninspired slog, an exercise of ineptitude, a perplexing showcase of popular people with amateur talent. This movie not only sets back comic book films for 20 years, but it is a complete degradation of modern movie making. There are gratuitous plot holes, Exposition dumps in illogical situations, a surprising lack of action and suspense, and one of the worst movie villains that I've ever seen put to screen. Now, we get things kicked off on the wrong foot right away when Cassie Webb's mother is infamously studying spiders in the Amazon. Here, she is searching for a miraculous spider that has spawned an entire village of spider people called the Aranyas. Within her research group, Ezekiel Sims is working closely with Cassie's mom as their muscle on this exposition. There is no indication as to why each person needs to find this spider or what their genus is. All we are given is that it grants special abilities. After Cassie's mom finds the spider, surprise, surprise, Ezekiel backstabs the team, killing every one of their companions, including shooting Cassie's pregnant mother. Ezekiel then runs off and the spider people, who look incredibly stupid in their Wish.com looking costumes, rescue Cassie and her mom. They dip her in a cloudy grotto pool, get a spider to bite her, and manage to birth Cassie right then and there. One question though, if these guys have the abilities to climb trees and hide in plain sight, why the fuck did they let Ezekiel run off with the special spider? They could have fucked him up easily with their powers. All Ezekiel had on him was a gun that had already spent about four or five bullets. I'm pretty sure with their precognitive abilities, they could have easily apprehended him or even killed him. But I digress. (laughs) Getting back to Cassie, the head of the Aranyas saves her and predicts that one day Cassie will return to them. For me, the first indication this movie was going to be a shit show from the facet of direction was the weird use of flash cuts and camera movements. There are a few eyesore insert shots of the Aranyas climbing up the trees and we see the camera visibly tilt 180 degrees on its side while it flashes between these cuts. This not only is nauseating to watch, but it's not artistic at all. It looks fucking dumb. 
Now we flash forward 30 years later, and we finally get to Dakota Johnson. Cassie Webb is a paramedic, which, in my opinion, actually lends itself to an interesting premise for a superhero origin story. A woman who is used to saving people's lives, using her skill set to rescue people in tandem with their superhero abilities. That sounds pretty good to me. But in place of a character arc, the writers of the story, who I have to reiterate, wrote Gods of Egypt and Morbius, make Cassie to be an apprehensive hero, a woman with no discernible personality, love life, or distinguishable hobbies or quirks. And I have to say, Dakota Johnson was the perfect choice to act out this quality of writing. She has the charisma and the comedic chops of a wet piece of toilet paper. Her jokes don't land. Her dialogue is so lifeless and boring. She gives Cassie no pathos since her backstory isn't particularly engaging. She claims that her mother hated her despite evidence that her mom died while giving birth to her. The writing is clearly all over the place and you can tell that these guys, Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless, shifted gears and stories halfway through the making of the movie. So the writing gets sloppier and more forgetful and lazy as it gets going along. The abilities that Cassie possesses throughout the middle and end of the movie are wildly inconsistent, and it shows that they knew nothing about the source material. It feels like after her powers awaken inside of her, she gains the ability to do whatever it is that the movie needed her to do. Things like astral projection, superhero strength, time manipulation, and the ability to affect a person's perception of fate. And we'll get back into that in a bit when we discuss Ezekiel Sims. Now, throughout the film, Dakota is given the character direction to be a complete dick to people for no good reason. She'll rescue a person from a traffic collision. She'll receive a thank you drawing from the person's family. And then she'll blatantly call it a piece of trash in front of the kid's family. It's so one note and weird. Now, I understand you want to set the ground for a character arc for her by putting Cassie in a position to grow as a person, but this comes off as a little bit too mean-spirited and outright unlikable. It's practically irredeemable because of how pathetically impractical it is that any human being would be treating a child like this. It's one of the very first examples in the story of how the writers don't understand how to make dialogue sound natural. She tries to make a joke with Adam Scott's Ben Parker that the drawing the kid made was performed on cardboard, which is too thick to bend in half to throw away. Like, what the fuck is this dialogue? <laughs> how, how is that funny? I, I know for a fact that no one in the audience, uh, the six other people that were there with me, they didn't laugh or chuckle at that joke either. It was just completely dead on arrival. And this plays out well throughout the movie with her chemistry, if you want to even call it that, with all the other characters in the movie. Adam Scott gets a real short end of the stick in this movie. In this movie, he is tasked with playing our third iteration of live-action Ben Parker, a.k.a. Uncle Ben. But we can't say that, though, because Sony isn't allowed to directly use the Spider-Man license or character namesakes, so they'll tippy-toe around those facts to avoid a lawsuit. Look, I love Adam Scott. He's been in some of my favorite films and television series of all time. I particularly loved him in Parks and Recreation, and especially in Step Brothers. Even with his stellar comedic background, he cannot save this movie on his own. He, too, appears as boring and humorless as the rest of the cast. They made him look really bad here. So, Cassie's powers awaken when she gets trapped in a vehicle that careens off the side of a bridge into a river. 
In another stupid display of expositional dumping, (laughs) she envisions the events of the film acting out in front of her eyes. We see fireworks, a train, the Aranyas, and the Pepsi logo. (laughs) I'm going to get back to that. (laughs) Okay. Oh, sorry. We'll be getting back. To, we'll be getting back to the Pepsi logo. I have a lot to say about Pepsi in this movie. Oh, okay. The CGI in this movie is incredibly cheap looking, even for the five or six times that we see it used in this movie. And even though it was made for $80 million compared to the Marvel's $350 million budget, but that's no excuse why the special effects look like something out of the Corridor crew on YouTube. And no offense to them. In fact, I think their work even looks better than this crap. But there's a huge glaring issue with clairvoyance in movies. The ability to see the future as a movie technique and a plot device can only become incredibly annoying. It's why films like Next or Looper only used it sparingly. Audiences can become confused, frustrated, and nauseated by the way a movie will show in one event, reverse it, then play the scene all over again. And this movie makes the mistake of taking that horrible trope and overusing it. Each scene of action, if you even want to call it that, makes the mistake of reversing the action multiple times and replaying everything from the beginning all over again multiple times. There are several points in this movie where Cassie will see an action play out. It's shown in quick, violent, aggravating cuts. It will reverse to Cassie trying to focus on what she thought she saw, and then she'll do it again. In one scene, it even does it three times. And I think this type of trope in the hands of someone more creative, let's say like a Christopher Nolan or a Duncan Jones, these directors would find a way to convey the clairvoyant power in a unique way. Hell, Duncan Jones did it extremely well in the movie Source Code, which is another phenomenal movie and one of my favorites. You should definitely check out Source Code. But here, it's done so amateurishly, it's irritating. Why spend your time watching a movie that cannot establish a reliable narrative timeline of events? Half of what we see play out on screen in this movie gets quickly rewound and rang untrue anyway, so you can't rely on what you see here. It's not cool, it's not fun, it's fucking annoying. This is what separates the so bad they're good movies from movies that are so bad you'd never want to watch them again. The chore of watching this movie's action scenes is too overbearingly irritating that it isn't even remotely entertaining. I can't claim a movie is so bad that it's good if the movie is flat out annoying. But alas, there is, however, one aspect of the film that was so goddamn awful, it came around to be good to me. And that is Ezekiel Sims. I feel so bad for Tahar Rahim. He is a BAFTA award-winning actor. I feel bad for him because he looks the worst of all these actors in this movie. His entire on-screen presence is butchered by one of the hackiest editing jobs that I have ever seen. You guys ever watch those Japanese films that have been dubbed over in English? In those movies, the actors move their mouths with Japanese language, but the words that you hear are in English, so their words don't match their mouths. 
Nearly every single line of dialogue coming out of Taha Rahim in this movie is dubbed over. I don't know what the fuck was going on here. Tahar can clearly speak English, so why did they cover up his diegetic language with dialogue that sounded like it was recorded in a closet? At first, it became really jarring. Then, it becomes insanely distracting. Until finally, <laughs> it became so hilarious I laughed every time he came on screen. At a certain point, I even began wanting to see him come on screen. Laughing at his appearances was the only spark of joy I felt while watching this movie. Oh, but the hilarity doesn't just end there. The plot of this film, the inciting incident if it were, comes from a scene at the beginning of the movie, which you've seen in the trailer, where the three spider women beat the shit out of him. (laughs) This occurs in a dream sequence where Ezekiel envisions the future where the three spider women, with no rhyme or reason at all, break into his New York apartment beat the shit out of him, then throw him out of the window to his death. The Spider-Women don't infiltrate him because he has some evil secrets. They don't go after him for some revenge. They just break in and kill him unprovoked. (laughs) And that's the only motivation or backstory that this character ever receives. That's it. That's as deep as it gets. He only exists in this movie because he wants to kill the women that killed him in his dreams. (laughs) Dude, it it would be like if I had a dream where I'm the quarterback of an NFL team in the Super Bowl and Patrick Mahomes beats me in the game. Then when I wake up, I decide I want to travel to Kansas City and kill Patrick Mahomes because he beat me in my dream. (laughs) so freaking stupid dude (laughs) now to add on top of all the garbage going on with his motivations let's talk about his powers and personality this guy's only discernible traits are that he walks around in expensive suits barefooted at that and he can seduce any woman he wants in fact the one woman that we see him seduce in this film happens to be some kind of cia executive that happens to have a secret password to a government program on a laptop that allows him to control every fucking security camera in the world and can control every streetlight. It's a plot contrivance that allows him to locate the spider women without actually getting to know them. It's so fucking lazy. (laughs) He quite literally controls the entire grid of New York because of a one-night stand. And in this shit show of a scene, we get our first peek at his superpower, which is to climb up on the walls and poison people that he touches. That's it. He doesn't swing, he doesn't fight particularly well, he just touches people and kills them. Ezekiel Sims is quite frankly the worst Spider-Man that we've ever seen put to screen. But oh wait, I shouldn't say that because they cannot use the word Spider-Man in this movie. (laughs) He's the Timu Spider. The Payless Spider, the Wish.com Wall Crawler, the AliExpress Arachnid. (laughs) Those are just a few nicknames. You're welcome to take them if you want, Sony. We now need to address the elephant in the room, the Spider Women. Now, you're likely interested in this movie because of Sydney Sweeney and her two companions, but then there's also two other girls with her. Now, they are the most one-dimensional, flat, shallow, unimposing heroines you'll ever see in a comic book film. 
Sydney's Julia is an introverted nerd who has issues with her dad and stepmom. She doesn't really speak her mind on things, and she keeps to herself majority of the time. Celeste O'Connor's Maddie is a delinquent. She skateboards and flips off ambulances, and she has an edge to her, and she gives Cassie attitude for every decision she makes in the group. And then there's Isabella Merced's Anya, who is an illegal immigrant who is illegal. That's it. I honestly can't remember a damn thing about her in this movie. She's that forgettable. <laughs> so if you came into this movie looking forward to seeing how these women connect to the Tom Holland Spider-Verse, how they got their powers, or how they all came together in a badass team-up, I have to tell you that you are shit out of luck. That one scene where they break in and kill Ezekiel in his dream, that's all you'll get out of these women. <laughs> There is no expansion on their backstories, no expansion on how they got their superpowers, and in fact, I don't believe they finished the movie with superpowers at all. <laughs> None of these characters share any similarities, they don't even go to school together, or social circles. Their relationship with each other and Cassie Webb relies solely on this one week that they spend together, then they become a family at the end. <laughs> it makes no sense. But what makes this turn at the end of the film so extremely unearned and frustrating is that almost since the moment that they hopped into the taxi with Cassie, they shared no chemistry with our hero. Cassie, whose sole purpose as a paramedic is to save people, who also happens to be a clairvoyant, superpowered woman, is quick to try and abandon them every single chance she gets. <laughs> there are at least three occasions in this movie where Dakota Johnson says to the trio that she has to leave. Then she proceeds to go off on a side quest. <laughs> the first time she does this, she leaves them in the woods for three hours, where they leave a fire burning. <laughs> the second time is after they have the encounter at the diner. Cassie holds them up at a hotel overnight. She then leaves them alone and goes back to the diner on her own to have the stupidest exposition dump in the entire movie. I'm not kidding you. In the diner, Cassie imagines herself and Ezekiel having a conversation where he tells her why he is hunting the girls, why he killed Cassie's mom, and then he poisons her with his touch. All of this is done inside of Cassie's head, mind you, which leads me to believe that the writers couldn't think of a natural way to have the two lead characters interact in any sort of meaningful way. So they went ahead and went with this stupid cop-out as a last-ditch effort, where we're told what the villain's intentions are, as opposed to being shown that in a natural sense. There's no discovery aspect, no inciting incident that helps them learn about Ezekiel. She's just told exactly what she needs to hear. Instead, she just feeds herself the information that she needs inside of her own head, and it makes no sense whatsoever. But I digress. Cassie leaves the girls alone one more time this time leaving them with Ben Parker and his sister Mary, a.k.a. Peter Parker's mom, played by Emma Roberts. This endangers the lives of Uncle Ben, Peter, and Mary, along with the three girls. Why does Cassie do this? It's so that she can go from New York to Peru in the matter of one day and learn everything about her mother. She finds her birthing pool, thanks in part to a cruelly hand-drawn map and picture left by her mother in a notebook. That then leads her back to the original Aranya from the opening scene of the movie. He dumps more exposition on her before she gains the ability to go back in time and have a conversation with her mom. If you haven't seen the movie, 
I fully understand that the past 10 minutes of this podcast have been kind of a messy, chaotic disaster of plot explanation. I'm so sorry, but that is what it is. That's what this movie fucking is. <laughs> this movie is a complete mess. A disaster of plot holes and contrivances. Now, the scene where she gets up and leaves for Peru is the exact moment where I took notice of the couple that was sitting next to me. They got out of their seats and left the theater. They never returned. I cannot remember the last time that an audience member sitting next to me walked out of a movie. But kudos, Sony. You accomplished that. As I struggled to write this, there are a couple more points that stood out to me as absolutely batshit crazy. Not once, but twice in the span of 30 minutes, Cassie crashes a taxi through a building and incapacitates Payless Spidey. She obviously has no fighting abilities, so the only way they can have her rescue the girls is by hitting him with a car. Twice. (laughs) See guys, that's what you came to the movie for, right? The exciting moments of the movie where Dakota Johnson runs a taxi into a fake Spider-Man, right? (laughs) Now, before I wrap this all up and I get to my final verdict, I want to mention Pepsi. (laughs) Refreshing, sugary, brisk, frothy Pepsi Cola. You see, this film has two obvious endorsements, Budweiser and Pepsi. In some of the most egregious uses of product placement since the Transformers movies, Pepsi and Budweiser are used in shots where their labels are clearly aimed at the camera, placed front and center, and done without shame. Now look, cans on the screen don't annoy me. Sometimes product placement can add to the immersion of a movie. In this case, it became distracting. In the final shot and the final scene of the movie, the girls all head to some weird-ass fireworks factory to bait Ezekiel into an explosion that will kill him. The warehouse of fireworks is somehow property of Pepsi Cola Co. There, we see a large-ass Pepsi sign at the top of the building. Ezekiel then chases them to the top of the building where the fireworks are destroying every brick, tile, and wall. Here, Cassie gets her ultimate ability, a magic astral projection that allows her to affect all three girls at once. And we have seen this many times in the movie. We get potential future shots of the three girls falling to her death. But because Cassie can now magically master the ethereal, she travels back in time and uses her projection to save all three of them at once. Ezekiel then attacks Cassie one final time where she manages to knock him over. And guess what happens next? The fucking Pepsi sign knocks over the edge and crushes him to death. (laughs) That is right, folks. Ezekiel Sims, the villain of our movie, is defeated by Pepsi. Yeah, yeah, that happens. (laughs) After Ezekiel is killed by Pepsi, Cassie is then shot by a pyrotechnic into the Algony River. She is nearly killed, and then the three girls manage to save her life. They use the same CPR techniques that Cassie taught them earlier in the film, and it all comes full circle. But that's not without the cost of her vision and her legs. You see, Cassie Webb is left blinded, and she's now paraplegic. And to close out the movie, we get one final shot of her in her full gear. The final images we get of her is a hilarious sight of Dakota Johnson in a mechanical wheelchair with a stupid red cat suit 
red sunglasses, and she projects herself among the spider women. <laughs> Her costume looks outrageously hilarious here. It is so dumb looking. <laughs> I think everyone in the theater laughed at it. But that begs the question, when did the other girls get their superpowers? I guess we'll never know because they're leaving that up to a sequel bait. The credits then roll. Now, I want to let you know, there are no after credits, by the way. I think Sony knew that this movie was going to be a shit show, so they removed any potential post-credits scenes that tie into Craven the Hunter or any of the Spider-Man movies. So if you're going to catch this movie in the theaters or on Crackle, which is where this movie belongs, by the way, don't stay after the credits. You're just wasting your time. Now, I know I just narrated the entire movie, but I had to. This movie had so much garbage packed in that I couldn't help myself. I'm actually proud that I was able to keep the YouTube review to only five minutes because all of this has been building up inside of me since Wednesday, since the moment I saw it. Do I think this movie is worse than Morbius and the Marvels? Absolutely. This is a train wreck, a film that defies what it means to be a blockbuster. The incompetence that's on display with this movie narratively, creatively, and visually is perhaps the worst I've seen in a film for quite a long time. I will even go as far as to say this is worse than my Gilly Award winning worst film of 2023, The Flash. I also don't believe that this movie is so bad that it's good either. This is an assault on the senses and brain. Stay away from it, save your money, and use your time more wisely. Madame Webb gets a resounding 1 out of 5. It is only the second 1 out of 5 review that I've given on this show since Biodome, and that's quite the achievement. So, there we have it. Before we wrap this episode up, let's move on to filmmaking factoids, critical reception, and audience impressions. It's time for Act 3, Beyond the Final Scene. So to no one's surprise, Madame Webb is rated rotten from audiences and critics equally. This is a movie made for no one. On Rotten Tomatoes, critics score the arachnid abomination 13%. Peter Travers, acclaimed film critic from ABC News, says, God awful is too wimpy of a word for this super diva cash grab that sinks Dakota Johnson in what feels like a random batch of half-baked ideas tossed at the screen in a cynical assumption that will buy any lazy hack work that is Spider-Man adjacent. Oof. Richard Roper from the Chicago Sun-Times and former partner to Roger Ebert writes, It gives me no pleasure to report this because we can use some fresh and original superhero adaptations on the big screen these days, but the Dakota Johnson starring Madame Webb is one of the worst comic book movies I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, shit. Now, generally, the public is kinder to bad films, but even they have their limits. Madame Webb's audience reception is at 54% rotten, which lends me to believe the people that are only scoring it highly are the ones that are fans of Sydney Sweeney and Marvel fangirls. An audience reviewer, Claudia S., says that Madame Webb was the shittiest of shitstorms that I've ever paid $26 to see. Do not see this at your own risk. That's right, people. Save your hard-earned cash. Do not spend it on this movie. Even if it's funny to laugh at, this is not a movie worth $26. 
One last audience review I want to highlight comes from Kenneth T, who writes, This movie was so bad that it wasn't even hilariously bad or campy bad. It was not only distressingly stupid and poorly written, it was also almost offensive in how it was marketed. The characters never actually become superheroes. The whole premise is really that Sony needs to make a throwaway movie every five years to keep the rights to Spider-Man. However, I don't think they even knew how much money they'd lose on this pile of garbage. I wouldn't suggest anyone even watch this on TV. One star. Offensive is the perfect term. Manipulative marketing is one of the worst ways to get an audience to see your film, and this movie is guilty of that. Now's the time that I rattle off some filmmaking factoids before we lay this turd down to rest once and for all. It's no secret that Dakota Johnson is extremely displeased with this movie project. In recent interviews, Dakota has gone on record to admit to firing her agent over the fact that she was pitched that this project was going to tie into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at a couple more gems from Dakota during her press junket tour. Now, according to her, in an interview with The Wrap, the screenplay underwent extensive rewrites to the point that it no longer resembled the film that she signed on for. The original screenplay, which was described as darker and very Terminator-inspired, would have seen Madame Webb and the Spider-Women trying to protect a pregnant Mary Parker from Ezekiel Sims, who wants to kill her to prevent the birth of Spider-Man. That, to me, actually sounds pretty good. But what the hell happened? It feels like Sony had cold feet and withdrew all Spider-Man mentions at the last minute and they had to somehow work around it. This was a disaster. She then also went on and said, I've never really done a movie where you're on a blue screen and there are fake explosions going off and someone's going, explosion, and you act like there's an explosion. That to me was absolutely psychotic. And I was like, I don't know if this is going to be good at all. I hope that I did a good job. You know, I actually kind of have respect for Dakota Johnson for speaking so bluntly about this. This could be damaging to her career, but I'm glad she's owning up to the hilarity and the awkwardness that's surrounding this film. Oh, this next factoid is really funny. Epic Games, known for Fortnite, strongly refused to collaborate with this film due to its unfavorable drastic changes made during reshoots. You know your film is bad when even Epic, the people who put Fortnite out, don't want Madame Webb in their video game. <laughs> and as if the quality of the film isn't bad enough, the movie's runtime is insulting to boot. At 1 hour and 56 minutes, this is the longest running film in Sony's Spider-Man universe. One thing I forgot to mention in my review, but it does make for an interesting filmmaking factoid. Did you know that this movie rewrites the classic with great power comes great responsibility line from the classic Spider-Man cartoons? Cassie in this movie, at the end when she's fighting Ezekiel Sims, she overhears the Aranya finally telling her, when you accept responsibility, great power will come to you. What? Dude, I don't even know what to do with that. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, man. Is it like, okay, if you own up to responsibility, you just all of a sudden become super powered? Is that what we're getting at with this? It's so dumb. So with that final factoid, we finally reached the end of our journey with Cassandra Webb, Ezekiel Sims, and the 32nd Spider-Woman. 
<laughs> so what did you think of the movie? Sound off on the comments below on my Instagram and X. You can follow the show there with the username PC with Gil. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to stay up to date on the latest episodes. And of course, check out the YouTube channel where I will be producing more video reviews. I'll be producing lists and more movie-related content. Just look for Post Credits with Gil Garcia over on YouTube. Next week, we'll take a look at the Bob Marley biopic, One Love. And I will also share with you the upcoming March podcast schedule very soon on social media. Have yourself a good week, stay safe, and go catch a movie. Oh, <laughs>